Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Galatians 5. We, uh, I started a sermon last week, and I always bite off, I think, more than I can chew and had a lot of stuff and uh, had to stop in the middle, and it was um, where God... I think God ordained that. It was where it needed to stop, and so we're going to finish the rest of that today, Galatians 5. But I'm going to read the whole passage so we remember where we were at. Um, If you weren't here, then you would kind of get an idea of where we were at. We're going to be in Galatians 5, 19, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And so let's look at what God's Word has to say there. It says in Galatians 5, 19... Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. No, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I pray today that you would teach us about the fruit of the Spirit And what it means to crucify the flesh. And that we would live in a manner that would please you. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Reflecting Christ's likeness in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've been having some trouble with a person in the church. Um, And I think it's... uh, time to just go ahead and call that individual by name. It's been going on for eight years that I've been a part of this body, and it is, this person um, is uh, a trouble to me. 
A person gives me more trouble than anyone else in the fellowship. And the person who gives me more trouble than anyone else is named Roland John Kennison, okay? Right? That, and Larry, that's me, right? Okay, that's me. Um, so, more than anyone else, right? I trip myself up spiritually. I keep myself from being what God has called me to be. But the thing is, I'm not alone in this, Right? Very soon after you come to be a believer in Christ, you find out a startling discovery. You discover that there is a battle going on inside of you. That there is the flesh inside of you, and now the spirit dwells inside of you, and there is a battle that's going on. You've trusted the Lord as your Savior. You you, you, are, you are saved, but now you find out that the believer has some enemies. You find out that we have actually three main enemies. The believer has an enemy from without, that is Satan, the, the, the person of Satan who, who attacks us, tempts us, and is our enemy. We have an enemy that lives all around us, that is the world but the believer finds out they have an enemy that lies within, that is the flesh. And the Bible teaches that Satan, the world, and the flesh, they are our three main enemies. And I've come to believe through my experience, our main enemy is our flesh. We kind of blame everyone else, right? It was Satan, or it was the world, but really it is boiled down to our passions and our desires and our flesh. You might remember the song we sang as I remember singing in the church when I was a kid. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, right? That is the main problem. In fact, that's the very thing that Paul is teaching the Galatians church. And last week, we looked at 15 traits that he talked about as the deeds of the flesh. This is what the flesh works out. These are the things that the flesh does when we are, when, when we are not walking in the Spirit. The flesh is in control. We will see these. And I preached through each one to give us a little more insight of what the word meant in Paul's context and how that relates to us today. I hope I accomplished that. And I hope you saw, I hope you saw that. But without exception, these 15 traits that are mentioned in 1920 and, uh, 1920 and some in 21, they are, they are a perversion. They are the stretching of the boundaries of the good gifts God has given us. And then those boundaries, we try to, our flesh pushes them beyond what God has given us and, and creates sin. That is to say, just real brief reminder, immorality, impurity, sensuality, they are a perversion of the gift of sex that God has given to mankind to be enjoyed only within the bounds of marriage. And idolatry and sorcery, they are a perversion of the worship that God has given us and said, this is what I want it to be. And humans have pushed those boundaries and made sin out of it. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, envying. These eight issues are perversions of fellowship. 
what it means to be in good fellowship with people, and we've pushed those boundaries. It's a perversion of devotion and the passions we have. It's a perversion of righteous indignation when it talks about outbursts of anger. There, there, there is this pushing of the boundaries and drunken, carousing, and, and uh, the, those things listed there, they are perversions of joy and fellowship and enjoying God's creation that he's given us. William Barclay in his book, Flesh and Spirit, said this of this passage. He said, Nowhere is there better illustrated the power of evil to take beauty and twist it into ugliness, to take the finest things and make them an avenue for sin. The awfulness of the power of sin lies precisely in its ability to take the raw material of potential goodness and turn it into the material of evil. That is what these 15 traits of the deeds of the flesh are. They are taking something God has given us as a good thing and perverting it into evil. And Paul says before he begins any of those, he said, the deeds of the flesh are evident. It is obvious, it is evident when we are living in the flesh because these things pop out in our lives and they're on full display. And when they're present, when these deeds are manifested in our life, it's evident that our flesh is winning that we are living by the flesh, and that means we are living in sin. That's what I covered last week. The victory of the flesh means living in sin. Today, we move on to verse 22, and we learn that the victory of the Spirit means living in Christ-likeness. Victory of the Spirit means living in Christ-likeness. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and that is set in direct contrast to the deeds of the flesh. There is the deeds of the flesh, there's fruit of the Spirit. And notice how the word fruit is a singular word. It says the fruit. We don't, it's, it's like a bunch of grapes. You don't walk into Walmart and you say, oh, I like this grape, and I like this grape, and I'll take this grape, and you come away with a bunch of grapes that you've picked. You walk in, and you grab the bunch, and you say, this is the bunch of grapes I'm going to get. That is the fruit of the Spirit. That is to say, when we go through this list, you don't get to pick and choose which ones you want or don't want in your life. When the Spirit of God dwells within you, you have the fruit of the Spirit. All nine of these things should be on display. That doesn't mean they're going to be on display perfectly. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with some of them. But you don't get to say, I'm just not patient. So that's not going to be part of my life. Sorry, that's not the way it works. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And they all come together. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives... All of this is produced. And the other aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is that these are characteristics, when I mention these, I'm not asking you to work harder and harder and harder to produce these. This is not the fruit of Roland. It is not the fruit of, insert your name here, right? This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
It is his work in your life that produces these things. Just like a tree that is healthy and is growing and, and is mature, it begins to naturally produce fruit. A believer who is, has the Holy Spirit in their life and is growing and is mature in Christ will naturally produce this in their life because the Holy Spirit is free to work. And so as we look at these, as we, as we move into the fruit of the Spirit, I mentioned it's like it, it is victory in the Spirit means living Christ-likeness because all of these things are perfected in Christ. That is, we see Christ and we see all these things. And so our, our goal is to be like Christ. So how did Christ live and that's what we're going to attack these nine and see how did Christ live and what does that teach us. And so first we're going to talk about um, how we see Christ live toward God. How did Christ live toward God? And he said love, joy, and peace. That starts off this particular list. And this is talking about how he and God related to one another. And first of all, he says love. Love here is the Greek word agape. Those of you who have spent any time in Bible study probably have heard that, that word. It is not physical love. It is not brotherly love. It's not saying I love ice cream or I love steak. It's not that kind of love. The love is a self-sacrificing, unmerited, unconditional love that God gives. It is the love that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. Even though that's used at weddings, and there's nothing really wrong using it at weddings, but that's not, it's not romantic love. 1 Corinthians 15, it says agape is patient. Agape is kind. Agape is not jealous. It goes on. Agape does not brag. Agape is not arrogant. It goes on and on and says agape endures all things, and agape never fails. That's the description in 1 Corinthians 13. Not romantic love, not physical love, not brotherly love, but agape love that comes from the Father, unconditional love toward us, not based on who we are or what we have done, but based on who God is and what he has done. And he just pours that love on us. And that love should spill out of us when the Holy Spirit is in control. That kind of unconditional love should pour out on others. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how they live. It doesn't matter how they've treated us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is forgiving. And it pours out of us onto others. We see how God lived, or how Christ lived toward God in love. We also see joy here. Joy is not happiness that's dependent upon happenings, right? It's a happiness that comes from a, a, spiritual, a spiritual basis. That is to say, it is a response to the gifts that God has given us. It's the ability to live through all things because our relationship with God, that God loves us unconditionally. And so that person might have said something mean to me, and that might make me sad, but I know God loves me no matter what. 
I know I might have been treated bad or, or the world seems like, you know, is overwhelming and I get depressed maybe, but God loves me unconditionally. And I put my, place, my trust in him and I will be with him forever. And so there's a joy that wells up, a, a happiness, but that's not even the right word because happiness indicates dependent upon happenings. And a joy is just a happiness regardless of what's going on around you. It's a joy. When the Holy Spirit's in our life, when he is in control, we may not always be laughing giddily. I don't mean that. But there's a joy that's deep inside of us. And then he says, talks about peace. Peace here is like the Hebrew word shalom. It means wholeness, soundness, and fellowship with God. It, it, it's from a word that means to bind together. And, and it was used in medical terms. When someone broke their bone... That bone was to be set back together, and that word is peace. And when that bone grows together, it becomes stronger at that point than any place else on the bone. And that is, that is the sense that this word means. We were born at war with God. We were born in our natural state enemies of the Creator. And when we give our life to Jesus... He brings a peace. He brings us back together with God, and that bond, bond, uh, that, that bond is so great that it's stronger there than any place else, that there is a peace that can only be found in Christ. True peace comes from the binding of our hearts together with God's will. And so when we look at how we are to live, what the Spirit produces in our life, we look at Christ's likeness and we see that Christ lived in love and joy and in peace. We also see not only how Christ lived toward God, but how Christ lived toward others. Look in verse, the last part of verse 22. He says, patience, kindness, and goodness. These are words that are dealing with how we relate to other people. The word patience, there's a couple words that are used for patience in the Bible, and, and this word for patient is a word that means long-tempered, right? It means patience. It's a word that deals specifically with people because sometimes you need patience with people, right? <laughs> okay, a lot of times you need patience with people. And that's a gift that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That there is this long suffering is how the King James word brings it out. Which is, if you think about it a little bit, it's just, you know, I'm suffering with this person, but I'm going to suffer along with them. It's a patience. It is a long fuse. It means not getting angry when people are provoking you. It means putting other people first and and just putting up with their idiosyncrasies no they are not like you because we are all unique and so we need patience but as believers we get the patience of the holy spirit god is patient with us and that produces a patience within us 
And sometimes we need more patience with these people than with these, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's producing that. How, how did Christ live toward others? He was patient. He, sa- he says, next, the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Kindness is a gracious attitude. We experience this from God. God's kindness towards sinners is why we were saved. He is kind towards sinners and says, you don't deserve salvation, but I'm going to give you salvation. That's the idea of kindness. And that kindness, again, should fill us up and spill out onto other people. It speaks of kindness of heart and kindness in our actions. We see Jesus' kindness when he touches people that no one else will touch. He could have healed the leper without, without touching him. But the leper hadn't had anyone touch him in a long time. And Jesus gives him the kindness of a touch. We see the kindness when Jesus stands over Jerusalem and he weeps over it because they do not believe and he knows their, their end is coming. And that kindness, that gracious heart, he begins to weep. We see the kindness of the father who, when the son takes all his inheritance and spends it and, and ends up in a pigsty and finally comes back home in the hopes of maybe being the lowest slave in his father's household, we see the kindness of the father who welcomes him back as a son. That kindness should fill us and spill out on other people. It's the kindness that's produced in our life by the Holy Spirit is a gracious attitude. How did Christ live toward others? Patience, kindness, and goodness. Goodness here is namely the a quality of morality, but it's it's the idea is generosity is behind it. You can think of it as holiness in action. Right? It's one thing to be holy. It's another thing to take that holiness and do something with it. That is what goodness is talking about here. If kindness is the, the gracious attitude, goodness is the action that is prompted by kindness. It's going and doing good. That's how Christ lived toward other people. He was patient toward them. He had a gracious attitude toward them, and that gracious attitude and patience caused an action that was driven by those things. That's how Christ lived toward others. Patience, kindness, and goodness. We heard how Christ lived toward God, how Christ lived toward others, but we also see, and when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit's in control, we will live how Christ lived internally. How Christ lived internally, and we see the words faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all inside of us. With the Holy Spirit's work, you get what I'm saying. Faithfulness here is the idea of trustworthiness. It's the idea of steadfastness and constancy. It is... It is specifically in in the context here, talking about how a person believes 
what the Word of God says, no matter what else is going on in the world. That the culture isn't shifting our thoughts on what, who, who God is and what God requires. It's that we are constant and faithful to the Word of God. It doesn't matter if the culture is screaming in our ear one thing, we're steadfastly trusting what the Scripture has to say. Hebrews 11 gives us a list of all these people who are faithful, right? It's called the Hall of Faith. And, and all these people, they live their life in line with what God had said. They believed the Word of God, and they lived it, not perfectly, but faithfully. And they're rewarded by their faith. They believed God would do what God promised to do. That's faithfulness. And this faithfulness is not something we work up to. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit inside of us. When we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit, the author of the book (laughs) gives us more and more faith in the book. That is faithfulness. Second, he says, I mean, second in this section, gentleness. Those who read the King James, you might read meekness. The the Greek word here that was used, Aristotle defined it by saying, a person who has as much, a person who is as much in control of himself that he is angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. And that kind of gives a light to it, but I think it misses the point just a little bit. Because the main point here that that at least I want to get across is that meekness is not weakness. And I'm speaking to the guys here specifically. We We have this idea of a meek man who is kind of weak and, and you know, never, always afraid and, and always quiet, and that is not the word here. We can be gentle, and it doesn't mean we're weak. The Amish call breaking a horse, meeking the horse. And it's the idea of controlled power. If you were in biblical times and you were a king and you wanted a war horse, you wanted a strong, powerful horse, you had to meek the horse, right? You had to put that horse under your control. Otherwise, it's no good. What good is a powerful war horse you can't get on or won't do what you tell it to do? And so in order to have a great powerful war horse, the master had to meek it, had to break it, had to make it gentle. That is the way the word's used here. That is under the control of the one who owned him. As humans, we are made in the image of God. And because of that, we possess great power But that power is like a wild horse that no one can ride until we submit ourselves to the authority of the Father, to our owner, until he can meek us out. And the Holy Spirit in our lives produces a gentleness. That is to say, we have still power, but that power now is under the control of our owner. 
It's just not out there and, and all that. Yes, guys, we can hit people. But when the Holy Spirit is, is under, when we're under the control of the Holy Spirit, we control that, we can control that power. You can, yes, we have the power to abuse people with our words. We can do that. We have the power to do that. Words can be powerful when we walk under the control of the Holy Spirit. That power is under control. That is the idea. When we are walking by the Spirit, the Spirit will produce gentleness. That is submission of our power to God's control. It speaks of internal control over any power we have, physical, emotional, spiritual, and we place that all under the power of God. That's not just for men, it's for women too, but men need to hear this message. Faithfulness, gentleness, and then he says self-control. The idea of self-control here is the ability to keep one's passion under control through the power of the Spirit. In short, it's the ability to say no. That's what self-control is. This can be applied to a lot of areas of our life, not just drink or food, which is areas that, that we might have issues with, but it's able to take control of your schedule by saying, no, I can't. It's the ability to take control of your language by saying, no, to curse words or, or anger words or abusive words. It's the ability to say no to the internet ads that tempt you to buy this next gadget that you got to have, and you say, I think i got to have it, but no. That's, that's self-control. But it's not, it's, it is self-control, but it's self-control given to us by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is in control, then we can control Ourself. One of the proofs of us walking by the Spirit is moderation in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, the word self-control, the word that's used there speaks of an athlete's ability to control his body and his desires. In 1 Corinthians 7.9, it's used to speak of the control one has over sensual desires. And 1 Peter 1.6 tells us that self-control is the path toward perseverance because we can say no to the right now because we have an eye to the, long, the, the longevity of the situation. So self-control produces perseverance is what 1 Peter 1.6 says. We see how Christ lived toward God, toward others, and internally toward himself. And we are to reflect that when the Holy Spirit is in our lives. When, when he is in control, when the, when the Spirit is winning, we reflect this kind of Christ-likeness. And Paul finishes saying, against such things there is no law. See, the Judaizers in, 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 in the Galatian church, they were saying that we have to use the law as the restrainer for sin. If people do not have the law 
constraining them, they'll go and they'll live all in sin. And Paul says, no, when the Holy Spirit is controlling us, this is how we'll live. The fruit will, this kind of fruit will be produced in our life. And, and none of these, there is no law against any of this. You take these nine issues and there is no law that says that you can't be faithful or patient or gentle. You know, they, these all reflect the law. When the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, he restrains sin. So we cannot say, believer, we cannot say, I just can't fight this temptation any longer. I mean, number one, well, that might be true in the sense that you can't. But the second thing is that the Holy Spirit can. You have the Holy Spirit of the creator and sustainer of life living within you. The Holy Spirit, the one who hovered over the the waters at creation, the one who fell down on the apostles. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you who will produce this fruit in your life. And so you can't say, I just can't resist that temptation. Because the scripture says, greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. Victory of the flesh means living in sin. Victory of the spirit means living in Christ-likeness. That is the picture Paul paints for us. There was a story told of a Native American who came to Christ and he was asked about his newfound faith and he said, it, you know, it's like I have two dogs living inside of me. He said, the one dog is an old dog. He is mean and he is vicious. He's unmanageable. He's downright untrainable. That's the old dog. And the second is like a new dog. And that dog is obedient and he longs to serve Christ. He gives attention to the Lord. He is kind and gentle. And and he says, these two dogs are always fighting to get my attention. And the person who was talking to him said, well, which dog wins? And he says, the dog that wins is the one I feed the most. Right? And that's the picture of us. That's a good description of the Christian life. We have the flesh and we have the spirit who are warring inside of us. And the chances are the one you feed the most is the one that's winning. So who are you feeding? Who are you feeding? Are you feeding the flesh or are you feeding the spirit? Are you feeding the flesh on a steady diet of what the world has to offer? We detailed a lot of that last week. We're allowing our flesh to shape our thoughts and our actions. Or are you feeding the spirit? Are you seeking the Lord for victory in your life? Are you spending time in the Word on a regular basis and being fed by the Word? Are we building a relationship with the Lord through a time of prayer and communication with Him? Are we fellowshipping with other Christians in real life? Are we spending some time with other Christians in a real way? These develop and and feed the Spirit of God so that that dog wins in the fight, right? So we see that if we're going to be Christ-like, we want to live in the right way toward God, how he lived toward others. 
live right internally because the Holy Spirit of God is controlling us and giving us the victory. And so the question might be, how is the victory achieved in this battle? If these two are fighting, how do we achieve that victory? And that's what I want to finish with today. Just three kind of real brief thoughts going through verse 24, 25, and 26. How do we gain victory in the Spirit? Well, first he says we must crucify the flesh. Look in verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucify in this passage is constructed in a way that indicates it's, it's an action, intentional action by the person. There's a person who says, I am going to make the, decide, the, the, the choice, the decision to crucify the flesh. Crucify is a powerful word, especially for those living in Galatians. A crucifixion, yes, was what Jesus, what happened to Jesus, but it was a very public and painful way to slowly kill somebody. And it was to do so as a preventative measure. If you walked down the street and you saw people hanging on the cross because they stole something, that would be a pretty good deterrent to say, I'm not going to steal anything because I don't want to end up slowly dying on a cross. And you do whatever you can to not end up there. And Paul says, if you are somebody who wants the Holy Spirit to win, you have to decide to end up on the cross. You have to decide, I want to be crucified. I want to take the slow and painful way to kill my flesh so that the Spirit can live. Spiritually speaking, it's an act of repentance. It's, it's acknowledging I've been living according to my flesh, and I'm now I'm giving the Spirit you know, boxing gloves or, or uh, brass knuckles or whatever the Spirit needs in this fight so the Spirit can win over the flesh in this battle that's going on. And I'm going to allow the Spirit within me to begin to fight the flesh so I can now live according to the word of God, through the power of the Spirit. Crucifying the flesh means crucifying, he says. It's the, the flesh is passion and desires. The word passion, it means propensity or tendency, and it refers to outward expressions. And the word desires, it means craving and longing, and it has to do with inward forces. And so he's saying the flesh has these inner desires, these passions, these forces within us that wants to do things. And when we live out in the flesh, that's the passions. And he says we got to kill all, all of it. we got to kill those inward desires. We have to kill those outward expressions. We have to choose to sacrifice, to crucify the flesh and all the things it craves inwardly and all the things it does outwardly. We need to nail it to the cross. And this is only accomplished through Jesus Christ. Paul said earlier in Galatians 2, Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, that is the crucifixion of the flesh. When Christ was crucified, 
and I accept that work on the cross, then I am saying, my flesh, I am now crucified with him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus gives himself up. He gave himself up and, and he voluntarily went to the cross. And now we follow that example and we voluntarily and willingly go to the cross with him so that we can crucify our flesh. Surrendering into Christ means saying, I'm, I'm giving up my flesh, my passions, my desires, and I will now have Christ's passion and Christ's desire, and my life will now be his to do whatever he wants to do. That is the crucifixion of the flesh. And he says, how is victory achieved? I'm asking the question, how is victory achieved? He says, we must first crucify the flesh. Second, he says, we must walk by the Spirit. Look in 25. Not only crucify the flesh, but we must walk by the Spirit. 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He, when he says if here, he is not suggesting that there's some people who don't. The word could be better translated maybe since. Since we live by the Spirit. And some versions, if you're looking in yours, might already say the word since there. And living by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, he's saying that our life, our spiritual life, is produced by the Holy Spirit. Since we derive our life from the Spirit, is the first part of that, is what he's saying. Since we derive our life from the Spirit, then we are to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to be the soldiers out there whose drill sergeant says, left, right, Left, right, you know, one, two, however they do that. And someone can't be out there just skipping along doing their own cadence, right? If they're not in line, they get called out. The, that's who we are supposed to be. We are to, if, if our life is derived by the Spirit, then we must keep in step with the Spirit. He is our drill sergeant. And he says, I want you to step here, and I want you to step here, and here, and here. And we say, yes, sir. I'll get right on that. That is the Greek word. That's what the Greek word here, when it says we must walk by the Spirit, it is referring to marching. And if you press that military analogy just a little further, you, you get a, even a clearer picture of what it means to walk by the Spirit. The, the person who's in the rank and file doesn't get to say, hey, um, I don't like where we're going today. So I'm going to go take a leisurely stroll over here while the rest of you go that way, okay? And I'll catch up with you later. That, says, that doesn't get to happen, right? I've not been in the military, but my understanding is you don't get that choice. If the group is going out today and we're going to do a five-mile run, we're all going to do a five-mile run. And we're all going to start here, and we're all going to end here. Because it's not up to the person who's marching, it's up to the drill sergeant. Those who are walking in the Spirit are those who are filled by the Spirit. And when it talks about filling of the Spirit, it's an issue of control. 
When, when he says in Ephesians, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's about control. Who is in control? And he says that the Spirit should be. And if we've gained our spiritual life by the Holy Spirit, then we should allow him to control the way that we live. Our path in life. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So if we want victory over the flesh, we need to crucify the flesh and let the Spirit be in control. We need to walk by the Spirit. And finally, he says, we need to live in humility or in fellowship. And you can put each one or both of those words down on your outline because they both speak to what I'm going to talk about in 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Paul's saying, in view of the fact, Galatian believers, in view of the fact that you have a new life, op, you know, you, you're, you have a new life principle operating in your beings, then live in humility with one another, live in fellowship with one another. So you can see the tension here, right? You have two groups of people at least in the Galatian church. Part of them says we must live by the law if we're going to be believers. And then you have the other group who says let's have some more bacon, right? Because it's, it's stuff that they can eat now. And so the people who are eating bacon, they're going and saying, ooh, this bacon's good. Oh, look at us. We're going to eat bacon. And they go to the people who aren't eating bacon and says, doesn't that smell good? And they're eating it, and they're just boasting about their ability to eat bacon. I, I don't know if it's about bacon, but you get, my, you get my point. And these people over here, they're envious of the people who are eating bacon. Boy, I'd love to eat that bacon, right? And so there's... there's uh, feelings of jealousy and envy that's coming from those people. So there's these people challenging them, and these people are jealous of them, and it creates, it creates some tension and division where there's supposed to be fellowship, where there's supposed to be partnership in the Word. And so Paul says, don't live at odds with those who are in the body of Christ. Quit fighting over bacon and instead live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and live in fellowship and in partnership with those who are living in the Spirit. Quit fighting and boasting and envying one another. That is the idea. And if we want victory over the flesh, then that is part of it. We crucify the flesh, we live by the Spirit, and we live in humility with one another. We live in fellowship with one another. You know, we talked about soldiers. Soldiers just don't march in formation. They run in formation, right? And when they do, there's only one thing they have to worry about, and that is keeping in step. Right, If you start running and you're all in rank, they don't need to worry about where they're going. They don't need to worry about when they're going to get there. They don't need to worry about how much farther they have to go. Their commanding officer will give them the orders as necessary. All they got to do is keep in step. If you get out of step, you might trip. You might stop the whole group. You just have to keep in step. And that is the picture. That's the same as believers. All we need to know is how to keep in step with the Spirit. Where is God taking you? Where is God taking us as a church? You know, some of that's unknown. 
But what is known is the next step. We just take the next step and say, this is where the Spirit called me. And then we take the next step. And pretty soon, a lifetime of following and keeping in step with the Spirit produces a path in life that leads us exactly where God wants us to be because we're constantly and regularly obedient to the Holy Spirit. When we accept Christ, we must willfully choose to crucify the flesh and then walk in the Spirit and live in fellowship with other believers. That's how the Spirit can have victory in our lives. There's a war inside of all of us believers. Paul started this in saying, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit sets its desire against the flesh, and these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. We have a war inside of us, and the dog you feed is the dog that'll win. So who are you feeding? I'm going to have you bow your heads. Who are you feeding today? The flesh or the spirit? If you were to examine your life honestly, and you took these 15 traits of the flesh and these nine fruit of the spirit, and you said, which one more characterizes my life? Would you see more flesh Or would you see more of the Holy Spirit reflected in your life? Maybe today you need to surrender your entire life to Christ. You've never done it. You've been depending upon your righteousness to get you saved. And you say, all I see is this flesh. And you need to surrender to Christ today. Maybe you're a believer. You have accepted Christ, but you still have this war going on inside of you. We all do. but you haven't been allowing the Spirit to to win. You've been starving the Spirit and feeding the flesh. And today you're going to make a commitment to begin to, to feed the flesh. Maybe that's the decision Christ wants you to make today. Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask that you would speak to us. God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. We know as we look through these We would not have any of those things in our life if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. We would not be patient or kind. There would not be love or joy or peace. We would not have self-control or or gentleness or, or any of these fruit of the Spirit. And so I'm thankful that when you send the Holy Spirit into our life, He produces this in our life. And while we might need help in one of these areas or multiple of these areas or all these areas, God, we know it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we grow spiritually, these all will grow in our life. So I pray that you would mature us. I pray that we would spend time in the Word. I pray that we would spend time in prayer with you and be held accountable to other believers and and just mature and grow so that we could reflect you. And that's not for our glory, God, but for your glory, to show the world what great work you can do in a life and that we'd be faithful to share this with others so that they could come to know you. God, whatever decision that needs to be made today, I pray that you would move in our hearts and minds, convict us where conviction is needed, encourage us where encouragement is needed, 
But God, ultimately, we want to be shaped and developed more and more till we look and act and sound like you. And so, God, I pray that you would work that in our lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 10.45 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.